Oh yeah, he is. Amen? Amen. We're here to celebrate that and to uh, get into his word, which we're going to do now. If you take your Bibles and uh, our study has brought us through a very challenging portion of, uh, of scripture. And uh, some of you, uh, I think, enjoy the bumpy parts. You're like the kids in the back of the bus enjoying the bumpy sections of the road. You like it bumpy, you like to be thrown around a little bit. Some others maybe like it smooth and are uh, looking forward to some uh, calmer kinds of subjects. But uh, here we are in, in 1 Corinthians 14, and what has been throwing us around is the same thing that threw around the Corinthians so many years ago. Namely, selfish attitudes and the whole matter of love and unity, particularly as it relates to the subject of spiritual gifts, which we've seen in chapter 12, Paul says that all spiritual gifts are important and unity is vital. We saw in chapter 13 that love is more important than any spiritual gift. And we've come now to chapter 14, which addresses abuse and uh, misuse of gifts in the Corinthian church. His bottom line Verse 12, uh, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. That is the priority, and it is the application of that priority to the problems in the church that we find Paul doing here in this chapter. Now, last week we saw how two gifts in particular were problematic there, speaking in tongues and the gift of prophecy. And Paul's point was that prophecy is more beneficial than speaking in tongues because people understand what is being said. And if you don't understand what's being said, how can you possibly be built up? And so he makes the comment, he'd rather say five words that are understandable than 10,000 words that are not because edification is the priority. Now today what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, just do a brief exposition of verses 20 uh, through 25, and then I'm going to have some pastoral considerations uh, on this whole matter of, um, of, of the sign gifts and uh, speaking in tongues in particular. So let's pick it up now in verse 20. Here is what uh, Paul says, brothers, now by that sisters do not feel left out. It is sort of a summary term for all the believers there at Corinth. Brothers and sisters, we could add in there. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Now, no doubt when this was read to the the church, the Corinthians... This would have stung them a little bit, and we've talked about uh, how this is the case. In their mind, they were very mature because they measured their maturity based upon their spiritual experiences, particularly the whole matter of speaking in tongues. So by their definition, we are very godly, possibly more godly than any other church around. Paul says, no, you're not. You are like children. In your thinking, you are like children. 
Now, if you've ever been around kids, or if you would ever like go with me to visit a, a family in our church, if they have young children, then you would experience what I experience when I go. And that is, I go in there, and and uh, we sit down, and the kids are kind of running around doing their thing, and it's not very long before one of them says something like this, you know, look what I can do, <laughs> right? And then the sister sees the brother getting the attention and she's like, well, look what I can do. And she twirls or whatever. Kids want all the attention, right? They want to show what they can do. And apparently what was going on in the church at Corinth was much the same when it came to spiritual gifts. There was a kind of selfish display where they were wanting to attract attention to themselves for their amazing abilities, One commentator says this, it is the self-centered, childish love of display and attention seeking that Paul deplores. So Paul, Paul just basically says this, stop it, would you please? Quit being childlike. Think like an adult. Think maturely. Now his earlier emphasis that we saw last week, and I'm not going to re-preach that message, but I do want to add this. If you weren't here last week, much of what I'm saying this week builds on last week. And if you are interested in the subject, you really ought to listen to it online or or, or pick up the message because these build on one another. I'm not going to re-preach the message. But we did see last week that what Paul's concern is in verses 13 through 19 is the experience of a believer who comes to the church, the gathering of the church. And Paul's point was, listen, for the sake of the believers... Speak in intelligible words, not in unintelligible words, because intelligible words build up the church. People understand what's being said, and they can be spiritually built up. Now what he does uh, is he transitions to the experience or the consideration of an unbeliever who comes and happens to gather in with the assembly of the church. And we have... By the way, this is a common thing in any church where we have people that, that come to an assembly, a, a service for any number of reasons. You know, it could be you had a friend that invited you or you've been driving by the church and you thought, well, I heard about Christianity. I want to check it out. Or maybe you're visiting grandma this weekend and she said, if you're going to eat lunch at my house, you're going to be going to church with me. And so here you are today now in this service and you're uh, sitting there acting very interested. But the only reason that you're here is because you want grandma's lunch. All right. Whatever the reason is, we're glad that you're here. But this happens all the time. We have people that come and they are just, you know, they are what Paul calls here. Um, they are uh, the, uh, the outsider. Uh, and that's a spiritual term in terms of, uh, you know, the, the family of faith. Now, as we get into this concern about the unbeliever, we have before us one of the most confusing sections in the entire letter. And I'm just warning you with that. And I I could spend a lot of time trying to explain this, uh, although I'm not exactly sure I get it. Uh, But if I got to the end of the 15 message trying to explain it, most of you would probably look at me and say, we don't understand it. And so rather than spend all the time to get to the conclusion of nobody really understanding it anyway, how about if I do it briefly? How about if I confuse you briefly rather than take a lot of time to do it? Is that okay? All right. So what is this, what is this uh, saying? Let's read the text first. 21. In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. All right. 
What Paul is doing here is he is quoting from the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, where Isaiah says and, and, and predictively prophesies to uh, Israel that because of their sins, God was going to judge them and there was an army that was going to invade. Now, we know from the story, this was the Assyrian army who came and invaded Israel. And Isaiah is saying, listen, that is a sign of God's judgment. And he says, when you hear a language you don't understand, that will be a sign to you that God's judgment has come upon you. And so the language he's speaking of there is the Assyrian soldiers who are, you know, tearing through the land and are an indication, a sign of God's judgment. Paul draws the analogy here and says that, the unintelligibility of a spe- of a tongue's speech is like that to the unbeliever. It is a sign of God's judgment. Okay. Now, some of you are thinking to yourself, I get that. I don't know why he was saying that was so hard to understand. Uh, I'm totally with you. Okay, well, that's the easy part. Okay? That's not what I'm saying is confusing. Hang in there. We go on now. Uh, We go on now to what he says next. (laughs) Thus, tongues, we're reading now, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. So he says, tongues then, sign for unbelievers. Prophecy, a sign for believers. Now, the Corinthians thought the opposite. To them, speaking in tongues was a sign to Christians that they had the Spirit, that they were mature, that they were amazing in their giftings, and so they wanted to do lots and lots and lots of it because it was was for believers. Paul says, no, no, it's not for believers, it's for unbelievers. It's a sign of God's judgment upon them. Prophecy, though, is a sign for believers. Why? Because they can understand it and thereby be built up by it. So tongues then is a negative sign to the unbeliever. Prophecy is a positive sign to the believer. All right. Now you're thinking to yourself, I get that too. I don't know what you're talking about. That doesn't seem too confusing to me. Okay, that's also part of the easy stuff. Here now is where it gets a little bit confusing. Because based on this, you would expect, since tongues is assigned to unbelievers, that Paul would say, well, then you need to do a lot of that tongue speaking to the unbeliever. It's not what he says. In fact, what he says is the opposite of that. Look at verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Hmm. Now that is just mildly confusing and somewhat interesting. What is Paul saying here? Well, this is my best stab at it. What Paul is saying is this, that while speaking in tongues is a sign to unbelievers of God's judgment, it doesn't take an unbeliever where we want him or her to go. 
We don't merely want uh, 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 an unbeliever to realize God's judgment. We want them to realize God's salvation, right? And so in order for that to happen, they need to hear the gospel in words that they can understand, so thereby they may come to faith and be saved. So since that's the case, what spiritual gift speaks God's truth in understandable words? And the answer is the gift of prophecy. Okay? The gift of prophecy. So tongues are a sign of judgment to unbelievers, but the goal is not their judgment, it is their salvation. Therefore, speak the gospel not in words they don't understand, but in words they can understand, which then can lead them to conviction of sin and ultimately to salvation. So while that is a little confusing, I hope you get the sense of it. And in fact, you can really get the sense of the entire chapter in terms of three relationships that he talks about. In the church, to be have consideration for fellow believers and their edification, which means that we speak words that they understand. In terms of the unbeliever, it is their evangelization, which also means that we speak words that they understand. And the last part of the chapter, which we'll get into next week, has to do with our relationship with God. And the fact that God is a God of order and not disorder. Therefore, make sure that your services imitate the character of God. So you have edification, evangelization, imitation is what this entire chapter is saying. Now he adds an illustration here in verse 23. Uh, And the illustration is of an unbeliever who would happen to come into the worship service. And he speculates, I would say somewhat, uh, you know, he sort of imagines that if this person came into the service and if everybody there was speaking in tongues, what would the fellow think? Imagine that. Coming in, everyone speaking in tongues. There he is possibly interested in the claims of Christ, but he comes into a gathered assembly of the church, doesn't have the foggiest idea what anybody is saying, and he walks out and he thinks, these people, I thought I went to church, but I I was visiting the Looney Tune bin because these people are completely out of their minds. And he never once again considers the claims of Christianity because of the experience that he had in the gathered assembly of the tongue-speaking church. Now, I had an experience like this this past year where uh, I was on vacation and I was I was down in Florida on vacation and uh, it was a Sunday. And of course, pastors on vacation need to go to church on Sunday. It's just it's in the Bible somewhere, I think. And so I was looking online to find a church that I could attend on that particular Sunday. And I was looking at the listings of churches and I saw the name of one church and I thought, oh, I think I've heard of that. I think I've I've heard of that church. I think I've heard of that church. And so I decided I'm going to go to that church on the service time, location, all of that. So I I head to the church and uh, I got there a little late, which of course I don't like in our church when people do that, but it's okay for a pastor on vacation to do it. Um, that's also in the Bible somewhere. Um, and so I kind of slid into the auditorium and I sat what would be over like in this section over here. 
And the, the service had already started. And so there was music that was playing, and it was very beautiful music. And I was enjoying it. It was very well done and, and everything. And uh, it wasn't too far into the service before the worship leader began to speak in a, I'll call it a lingo I didn't know, okay? And was making sounds and sounded like he was talking, but didn't know what he was saying. Um, and if you didn't know, this is the, the contemporary uh, expression uh, in, a, in a charismatic church of speaking in tongues. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then some people over on the side started uh, doing kind of the same thing. And then it kind of moved into other parts of the auditorium. And it wasn't long before it kind of felt like to me that I was awash in a sea of, of uh, lingo that I didn't know. And was just kind of looking around. And you know what I thought to myself in that moment? I thought, this is going to make a great illustration when I get to 1 Corinthians 14. <laughs> because there I am. And now, of course, I'm a Christian. It's not exactly the same. And I also realized the kind of church that I had uh, uh, wandered into. But to stand there, I didn't have any idea what was being said or what was going on. And if I didn't know better, much like Paul said, I would have just walked out of the place and thought to myself, these people are completely out of their minds. This is what's going on here. I don't understand anything. And that's what Paul says. People hear tongues, they think you're crazy. However, when people hear prophecy, he says, they think to themselves, surely God is among you. In fact, we have here a fascinating description in verses 24 and 25 of what can happen and what we ought to pray happens every time we gather here where a sinner moves from their place of conviction to a position of worship. And he describes it here you know, in a wonderful way. Let me, let, me, let me read it for you. He says this. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God. And declare that God is really among you. So what's going on here? Speaking in tongues, nobody knows what's going on. But a prophetic word, which we uh, defined as God's truth spoken and applied into the assembly of the church or the assembly of the small group or counseling session or whatever it is. It is an understandable expression of God's truth that is applied into the church. And the effect of that, it says here, is that the secrets of his heart are disclosed. Okay, disclosed to who? Does the church put them up on the screen then for everybody to see? Is that what he's talking about here? It's disclosed to the sinner, right? To the sinner. There he is in the gathered assembly. God's truth is being proclaimed and lived out in, in the life of the church. And there is this sense in him that 
what he has done is being revealed to him. He is seeing himself in the mirror of God's truth, morally and spiritually. He's coming to see himself as God sees him. Most pastors will tell you stories like this. And this doesn't happen all the time, but it certainly happens where after a service, you know, I'll be talking to somebody and and they'll come up to me and they'll say, hey, I want to know the truth. Who told you? I'll be like, what? Who told you what I did? I don't know what you did. Somebody tipped you off, didn't they? Nobody tipped me off. What are you talking about? Or somebody told you what I'm going through, right? I go, no. And what you hear is this. It was like you were talking only to me. What are they saying there? Are they not saying exactly what this is describing? Where somehow spiritually there is something that God does when God's people get together and the truth is proclaimed where we feel in our conscience the reality of our sinfulness in a way that we think that everybody else must know what I've done because I'm feeling it so much right now. And that God uses that to take people from the place of conviction of their sin to a place here described as falling on their face before God and declaring that God is really among you. In other words, they come to a point of worship, or we might say it this way, they come to embrace the gospel of Christ, that they are saved. That God does that, and we ought to pray God does it every time we gather. Good place for an amen for those that are with me. In fact, perhaps even right now, as I talk about this, might there not be somebody here wandered in here for some reason? Or maybe you've been coming for some time. And there is mysteriously a kind of stirring in your heart where God is working and bringing to bear to your mind consideration of the life that you have been living. And you feel perhaps the hypocrisy of being here and acting like you're all together. And you're wondering inside, what must I do to get rid of this sense of feeling? I can't wait to get out the door because I feel, I feel weight on my heart. I hope that something here today, whether it be my words right now, or Clark Forsyth talking about a culture of life, or a choir rejoicing in the greatness of God, or perhaps the kindness of somebody as you came or as you leave today, might put the thought in your mind, if these people have found forgiveness for their sins, well, then maybe there's hope for me. And I want to say to you, indeed, there is. The people that you are sitting around, the person that is talking to you right now, we are sinners. We all have felt that. And we have sought relief in the person of Jesus Christ who died for our sins and who offers forgiveness and salvation to all who will believe. And so, my dear friend, 
Don't run out the door. This is a good thing that God is doing in you. And if today, wouldn't it be awesome if today the very thing that we're studying is being lived out in some way and today somebody says, God is among you. God is here. Indeed, he is. Now, in order to put all this together, I want to very quickly look ahead to verse 27 and the restrictions that God, or that God, true, Paul also places on the use of tongues in public worship. This is what he says in verse 27. If, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So what Paul's doing here is, remember, it's like chaos in Corinth. And in order to just clamp down on the chaos, he lays down some very clear restrictions on how this particular gift was to be uh, utilized. He says, first of all, that uh, they are only allowed to speak if there is an interpreter present, which assumes then that there would have been knowledge that Somebody with that ability was there in the room. You didn't just sort of talk and hope somebody said something afterwards. You knew somebody with that ability was there. The number is restricted to two or three at the most. And if there is not an interpretation, he says here that they are to keep silent. Or in the words of my sixth grade teacher, Mr. Gibson, shut your face. So let's go back then to my experience at the church in Florida that I mentioned. If you grant the continuationists their point that tongues are still available today, and if the contemporary expression of that in, uh, in more charismatic type churches is actually speaking in tongues, which I said last week is a hotly debated point, what must also be then said about churches whose expression is like what I experienced that day in Florida. Here's what we can say. It is clearly unbiblical. It is not God's will. It may be many things, but it is not pleasing to the Lord. So whatever your position is on this issue, at the very least, Paul's parameters have to be followed to be pleasing to the Lord. Okay, so... What has Paul said? Just pull back now for a second. What has Paul said? Give your effort to building up the church. And in the church, that means speaking words that are understandable, that build others up, and speaking words to the unbeliever that leads them to faith. Verse 12, excel in building up the church. All right, so there's the exposition. I have a few pastoral considerations now, which is just a title that pastors use to kind of talk about what they want to talk about. So I have some things that I would like to share because this is a, as I noted last week, this is a uh, very controversial, contentious kind of thing in uh, the church at large. And every local church has to find their sweet spot on it. And what does this mean for their particular church? So let me just share some thoughts for us. What do we do with this? Well, the Capital C cessationist 
say, it's very simple what you do about this. You slam the door on it, and then you lock it, and then you take the key, and you grind it down so it never can be opened again. The capital C continuation is say, it's very simple what you do. You go to the door, you take it off its hinges, and you grind it down so that there is, it's just open, man. It's just open. And so you have then these two sort of ends of the spectrum, and in between those then are many, many conscientious, responsible churches and Christians that just want to be biblical. We just want to be faithful. We want to please the Lord in the midst of a, uh, a, a, an ambiguous issue like the one before us. Well, I've not really shared kind of where I'm at personally on this, and so I think I need to, and I'm going to now. The, the, the quote that I read last week from John Stott is a pretty good articulation of, as best I can tell at this point in my journey, what where I'm at with it. I want to read it to you again. John Stott says this, what then should be our response to miraculous claims today? It should be neither stubborn incredulity, but miracles don't happen today, nor an uncritical gullibility. Of course, miracles happen all the time, but rather a spirit of open-minded inquiry. I don't expect miracles as commonplace today because the special revelation they were given to authenticate is complete. But of course, God is sovereign and God is free and there may well be particular situations in which he is pleased to perform them. So what he says here, and this is, this, this is, I would be in agreement with this, that I don't see the Bible mandating that Sign gifts will never, ever be operational, no matter what, ever since the canon of Scripture was complete. However, I do affirm what I shared last week, the cessationist point, that is a historical redemptive one, that it, it seems the way that God operates is this way, that at key times of transition, there is a flurry of signs and wonders that he puts in around that time, in order to validate what he is doing in the transition, then followed by long periods of not as much of that kind of thing going on, less of it and and less in intensity. So that, for example, can God part the Red Sea this week? I'm quite confident that he can do it. He did it once, he can do it again. Uh, can, Can God feed us all by manna this week? Oh, yes. And wouldn't that be nice? We look outside. Is it snow again? No, it's manna. I love living here. People in Florida be moving up here. Breakfast every morning around the front lawn. It'd be great. Now, can God do that? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. He can do that. Do I expect him to part the Red Sea this week? No. Why not? Because in the story of redemption, God doesn't need to part the Red Sea this week. He raised Christ to save us. That was his redemptive work. And this is what now is uh, God's normal. God's normal now in the world is the miracle of regeneration through the hearing of the gospel by faith and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the sinner. So from a historical redemptive perspective... The New Testament no longer needs the same kinds of signs and wonders because it is self-authenticating. 
through the Spirit. Yet, emphasis on yet, there are too many examples of remarkable providences and even supernatural kinds of things for me at least, I don't know what your position is, but for me to say that God doesn't do that anymore. Let me just give you uh, two examples of this. I don't know if you're familiar with what's going on in the Middle East right now, but there are, and this has been going on for some years now, there are huge numbers of Muslims in the Middle East who are having, for lack of a better term, visions of the risen Christ. And through that are coming to faith and are converting to Christianity. Now, I don't know what, where you put that into your... I don't know if your theological pipe can smoke that or not. And I don't mean to confuse Christian liberty issues with speaking in tongues, but um, I, I don't know why I would want to deny that. If God is doing that, that's a great thing. Or how about what happened January 8th, 1956? Many of you know the story of Jim Elliott. And the five missionaries that were there to, um, they, they heard about the, the Aka Indians, and this was a, you know, a, a, a very violent, uh, unreached tribe of people, very isolated, and they just had a heart for them. And so, if you know the story, they, um, they ended up uh, kind of going into their area, landing there, and shouting in Aka, we're your friends, and trying to make contact with them, and... Um, what ended up happening was the uh, Aukas came one day uh, with a war party and they murdered all five of those missionaries. And the story goes, you can read this, I think it's in Through Gates of Splendor, Elizabeth Elliot, his now famous wife, you've probably heard of Elizabeth Elliot, and, uh, and the sister of one of the other men, uh, over the years that followed, built the trust of the Aka Indians ended up living with them, sharing the gospel with them, and many of them came to faith and they began a church amongst the Aka Indians, which is a remarkable and wonderful story. Here's part of the story, though. After getting to know the very men who killed her husband and the other men, and them, those men coming to faith in Christ, they related the story of what happened the day they went and murdered their husbands. And they said, when we killed those men, we looked up and above the trees, hovering above the trees were large, shining, bright beings. And they were singing. Hmm. Now, what do you do with that sort of thing? Oh, they didn't know what they were. That's, no, God doesn't do that anymore. Or perhaps God, even in that moment of martyrdom, was planting the seed of the gospel in the hearts of men and a tribe that he intended through their deaths to reach for Christ. And I'm totally good with that. <laughs> totally good with that. See, friends, God can, it's one thing to say that God can't do something. And on the other side, to say that God always does this. But rather to affirm that God can do it. And when he chooses to do the extraordinary, even the miraculous, 
to give him glory for it, which I think God chooses to do, especially when it assists the Great Commission. Now, does this validate everything? Should you all go home and type in miracles on Google and believe everything that you see that comes up on the screen? No, do not do that. In fact, and I'm just going to, I just like to say that I struggle to confidently put the modern expression of speaking in tongues in a biblical category. I agree with a quote from J.I. Packer from last week that I read where he says, uh, essentially, that it's possible that we will, uh, will, will get to heaven and find out that the modern expression was not the same as the Acts 2 speaking in tongues or what was going on at the church of Corinth. However, while it may not be the same, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is sin. It may not be unbiblical. It may just kind of be ah-biblical. Neither something to condemn nor something to encourage or seek, and definitely not something to think that you're more godly or spiritual because perhaps you have this capacity. It's a little theory of mine that this is more an expression of human it's a human religious expression uh which explains why we find it in all the religions of the world and um in protestant christianity and roman catholic christianity speaking in tongues as it's currently known is is seen all over the world and maybe it's more a part of our humanity than anything else but again that's just a theory of mine it's not a theology don't write it in the book and i don't want to argue about it <laughs> Let me say that now Here is how our church doctrinal statement tries to bring balance to the nuances of this matter. Here's what it says. In order that the expression of spiritual gifts be a source of unity, Bethel Church does not practice the sign gifts at gatherings within our fellowship. Now, there's the doctrinal statement of our church. Where do we see some balance in this? Well, uh, it emphasizes unity and love as being more important than anything else. It restricts sign gifts from the ministries and gathering of our church, which is a clear, lean, cessationist statement. But it also implicitly acknowledges that the private devotional experience of each believer is a matter of their personal walk before God and may not be the same for everyone, which is a tip of the hat to the continuationist as well. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And here at Bethel, we are not going to let this be an issue. Verse 12 again, strive to excel in building up the church. So anyone who wants to make an issue out of this is quickly going to be taken from chapter 14 and all that he says there back to chapter 13 and to be reminded of what that emphasizes, namely that love is more important than anything else. It is not gifts. It is not tongues. It is not prophecy. What did Paul say there? These all pass away. Love is the greatest because love lasts the longest. Indeed, love never ends. So, when your friends ask you, oh, where's Bethel Church on this kind of thing? What's going on? Where do they stand? The proper response in the wise words of J.I. Packer, we are for the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand with me right now, if you would, please.